turn with me to Daniel chapter 11. Just imagine for a moment that you're sitting on a train in a rear-facing window seat. So out the window, you can't see anything of the direction where you're heading. You see flying past you exactly where you are, and suddenly that's behind you. And you can see stretching behind you where you've been. You can catch a glimpse of where you're at in that moment as you're hauling along the tracks, but you can't see where you're going at all. Uh, That's how I heard one professor of history describe the human experience and the study of history. To be human is to catch these momentary glimpses of the present, just flying past us, the present. There it goes. And we can see in our memories the past, but we can't see the future. We don't know what's coming. We make plans, but we don't know the future. Just imagine if you could predict the future. Imagine if you could. On a few occasions, God did choose to reveal certain details about events that were going to take place in the future to some of his prophets, which is an incredible thing. Uh, Daniel 11 is a record of one of those prophetic visions that foretells events that were in Daniel's future. In fact, it's probably the most detailed prophecy in the Bible, just in terms of the number of people and the number of events and the number of years that it spans. Some 400 years of history covered in the prophecy here in Daniel 11. So why does God choose to reveal some things and not others? Why does he choose to reveal these specific events in history? As we get into it, you might have the thought, who cares? What do those historic events, what's so significant about those events? Why would it matter for God to reveal that? There are certainly much more pressing curiosities to us living today. We want to know about our future. We want to know what 2021 is going to hold. We want to know the outcome of certain things happening today. Why were these events so important that God would actually reveal them through Daniel to his people before they took place? Listen to these words from John Calvin commenting on this text. He says, God did not inform Daniel of other occurrences for the purpose of pandering to the foolish and vain curiosity of the many. The foolish and vain curiosity of the many. But he revealed these events to Daniel to fortify his servants and to prevent their falling away in the midst of these most grievous contests. Later, Calvin adds, the angel was not sent to explain to Daniel the history of the whole world but to retain the faithful in their allegiance and to persuade them under the most harassing convulsions to remain under the protection and the guardianship of God. So even though Daniel 11 does not tell you your future, it is meant to have that same effect on you, to fortify you, to prevent you from falling away in the midst of other grievous contests or harassing convulsions that may come. This, again, as we've seen throughout the book of Daniel, is meant to be a strengthening, fortifying word for the people of God in all times. And because of the length of this chapter, I I always check the word count, it's like almost half of what I typically 
try to limit my sermons to. So I'm, we're not going to stand and read the whole text. Rather, I'm going to read excerpts from the chapter and explain some of those and then unpack it a little bit more at the end. So we're going to pick up in Daniel 11, verse 2, right after the angel appears to Daniel in chapter 10. We saw that last week. And now here the angel gets into the content of the vision. And so let's pray and then we'll walk through this chapter. Father, as we've already done this morning, we acknowledge your presence among us. Thank you that you fellowship with your people, that you communicate yourself to us. And that's what we're trusting you to do now through your word. Make yourself known to us and strengthen us and give us hope and give us courage. Make us confident in Christ above all else. Amen. Daniel 11 verse 2 says, it's the angel speaking to Daniel, and now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. So this angel appears to Daniel during the reign of Cyrus, who's a Persian king. And this verse packs the rest of the Persian empire into a single, single verse here. Three more kings are going to come up, and then there's going to be a fourth king greater than all of those. That's a prophecy about King Xerxes. And then verse 3 moves on. That's it for the kingdom of Persia. Verse 3 moves on. Then a mighty king shall arise. So again, keep in mind, all of this is happening beforehand. The angel is foretelling, revealing to Daniel the future through this vision. Verse 3, then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven. But not to his posterity, not to his own descendants, nor according to the authority with which he ruled for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. So verses 3 and 4 foretell the rise of the Greek empire and Alexander the Great in the late 4th century B.C., and it foretells his early death. 32 years old, he dies right at the peak of his conquest, right as he's pre preparing another military conquest to the east. And the division of his empire, just as this angel revealed to Daniel, took place. His kingdom was divided up, not to his children, but to four of his generals. And then verses 5 through 35 zoom in. So that... Those first few verses span all the Persian Empire, Alexander the Great, and then verses 5 through 35 zoom in with great detail on a period when the six Syrian wars unfolds. My guess is you probably didn't even study this in history, in school, growing up. Six Syrian wars fought from 322 to 165 BC between two kingdoms that came out, that branched out from Alexander the Great. He had four generals. They divided things up. Two of those, there was the Ptolemaic dynasty in Egypt, and then there was the Seleucid dynasty in Syria. And the rest of the chapter refers to those two dynasties as the king of the north, that's Syria, and the king of the south, that's Egypt. Okay, those are the two dynasties that most of the rest of the chapter deals with. King of the north versus the king of the south. For example, look at verses 11 and 12. Then the king of the south, this is referring to Ptolemy IV, Philopater, 
he moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north. That's referring to Antiochus III, the great. And he, that's Antiochus, the king of the north, shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. That's Ptolemy, the king of the south. Verse 12, and when the multitude is taken away, his heart, Ptolemy's, shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. The, the detail in this chapter is so remarkable that liberal, unbelieving scholars look at it and they say, it reads like history. There's no debate over who these kings are referred to here in the prophecy. It's so detailed, it's so specific, it's so accurate, it must have been written after the fact. And of course, they come to that conclusion because of a presupposition, God doesn't exist, prophecy doesn't exist, nobody could ever do that, so it must have been written as history after the fact. It's incredible. Verse 12, just as foretold that Ptolemy would cause tens of thousands to be cast down, he returned to Egypt. He was offended about how he had been treated when he was in Judea and entered into the temple and desecrated the temple, and he was confronted there. And at one time, he rounded up all of the Jews living in Egypt, and he had them brought into an arena and trampled to death by elephants. Just one glimpse of the specificity of the prophecy in this chapter. Then verses 13 through 20 describe how that Seleucid dynasty in Syria gains supremacy, conquers the kingdom of the south, dominates them, and then verses 21 through 35 slow down and zoom in. And by the way, if you're taking notes about this, I, I plan to post this week uh, a resource for you. If you are curious, if you're the kind of nerd who likes to go back through and know, okay, each of these references, who was the king in history that that refers to, I have a great resource I could share with you. So don't feel like you have to capture all of this. just want to give you a sense of the, the meaning of this chapter. In verses 21, 21 through 35, it slows down and it zooms in even further on one particular king and his reign of terror. Verse 21, in his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. And this, everybody's in agreement, refers to Antiochus IV Epiphanes. And if that name sounds familiar to you, it's because he came up back in chapter 8. He was the little horn in Daniel's vision in chapter 8. And unlike all of the preceding kings of the north and the south, in this chapter, Antiochus IV was a usurper. Actually, his nephew was next in line to the throne. He was not the legitimate heir to the throne, but he usurped it from his nephew, just as God foretold through Daniel. And the reason this period is of particular concern to God's people is that Antiochus antagonized the people of God. He attacked Jerusalem. He desecrated the temple. He oppressed and murdered God's people. I'm going to read verses 31 through 35, which foretold those events. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering. Because he desecrated the altar, they stopped offering sacrifices there. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He set up a statue of Zeus in the temple and sacrificed a pig, an unclean animal, on the altar there. Verse 32, he shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. There were Jews who aligned with him just to be safe, just to be protected. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. 
and the wise among the people shall make many understand. Though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder, when they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. So up to this point, all of the scholars are in complete agreement about the identity of all the Seleucid and the Ptolemaic kings down through this prophecy spanning hundreds of years. And then we get to verse 36, and there's a ton of debate about who this king is who comes up in verse 36. The description doesn't match anything from history about the life of Antiochus Epiphanes. So liberal scholars who don't believe in prophecy, they say, that's easy, this is just a failed prophecy. The writer just got it wrong. Others say that this prophecy suddenly jumps from Antiochus Epiphanes in the second century BC, thousands of years forward, into the future to the very end of the world and describes a character that they call the Antichrist, whom they expect to come at the end of the world. I don't think either of those options fits the text. There's no reason to think that this very clear progression through history suddenly leaps the rest of human history, including the most significant event in human history, the the incarnation, the life, death, and resurrection of the Son of God, to the end of the world. Rather, I'm convinced that the abrupt transition marks the entrance of a new empire. We've seen that throughout all of Daniel's visions. He deals with the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. So most of the chapters dealing with the Greeks, we get to this point, who's the next empire? The Romans. And I think that's who's described beginning in verse 36. I think this describes the Roman conquest, beginning with Pompey, the general who conquered Jerusalem in 63 BC. Let me read verses 36 through 39. And the king shall do as he wills. I think that refers to not just one king, but the Roman Empire. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these. A God whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. Again, I understand this king, to refer to the Roman Empire, not one specific king. That's how Daniel referred back in chapter 7. He he used the word king to speak of entire kingdoms, Persians, Greeks, Romans. This is the view John Calvin takes of this passage as well. He writes, Daniel does not mean here any one single individual, for where shall we find one who exalted himself against all gods, who oppressed God's church? And fixed his palace between two seas. And seized up the whole east. The Romans alone did this. And in Calvin's commentary, he goes into great detail about the history of the Romans and how they fulfilled this prophecy. We know from inscriptions that Caesar Augustus, as one example, went by the titles, the Son of God and the Savior of the world. If that sounds familiar, that's because 
Christians intentionally, when they declared Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior of the world, they were making a very bold, very political claim, not Caesar, but Jesus is God and King. So the Romans exalted themselves in this way that's described here. And then the vision comes to a conclusion in chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. It says this, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. So just like we saw in the visions in chapter 2 and chapter 7 and chapter 9, I believe this prophecy here identifies the time of the Roman Empire as the time when the Messiah would arrive. The Son of God, the Savior of the world would arise under that empire to deliver God's people, to save them from their sins, and that that would be the time when God would pour out his final judgment on the people of Israel for all of their covenant breaking, all of their rebellion, their ultimate sin of rejecting the Son of God. So if you're thinking, whoa, that's a ton of history. It's a lot of kings, a lot of details, a lot of dates. It is, and it's remarkable. And it was given by God through an angel to Daniel for the people of God to fortify them by revealing to them the future that they would live through before it happened. To us, it reads like history. But it's not history for history's sake. So if you're tempted to tune out and think, that that seems totally irrelevant to my life. All of Scripture records historic events, but never merely for history's sake. It is theologically informed history. It's history through the lens of who God is. It's God revealing himself to his people in the very real, earthy, mundane, heartbreaking events of history. This is God revealing himself to his people, and we need to know this God for who he is for the days in which we live. Daniel 11 says to the people of God in every age, take heart, God is king. Take heart. God is king. He is the king of history. He is the king of kings. He is the king of salvation. God is king. He's the king of history. That's what this chapter reveals. The remarkable specificity of prophecy in Daniel 11 reveals God to be the king of history. By history, I don't just mean the past. I mean the whole story of human redemption. All of the events of human history unfolding, past, present, future. Another way to put it is, God is the king of time. The future is a mystery to us, but accurate prediction of the future is a mark of deity. And God himself singles that out as evidence of divinity. When he mocks worthless man-made idols, he puts his finger on this point. Listen to Isaiah 41, 21 through 23. 
speaking to idols and idol worshipers, bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter that we may know that you are God's. Prove that you are God's by telling us the future, God says mockingly. And a few chapters later in Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, he says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I think that's one effect of this chapter, just to read the specificity and to know it lines up with history and it was actually fulfilled, is meant to assure us God is the king of history. This chapter foretells details about five of the six Syrian wars, six of the Ptolemaic kings, seven out of eight of the Seleucid kings from Syria. It's just incredible. But not only do those detailed predictions, prophecies fulfilled in history simply imply that God is the king of history. Daniel 11 is full of explicit claims from God that he rules over history. Verses 27, 29, 35 speak of events in the lifetimes of these kings happening at the time appointed. That phrase appears again and again. At the time appointed. Appointed by whom? By God. It speaks of Kings rising up and making plans and not succeeding because it wasn't yet the time appointed by God. Verse 36 says that the king of Rome shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done. Decreed by God. It's one thing to predict the future. It's a completely different thing to decree the future. Right? I mean, if you had a vision of the future and you told it, that'd be one thing. But if you could decree whatever you want to happen and make it come to pass, that's a totally different thing. And that's what God does here in Daniel 11. And note what is decreed. This has to do with tyrannical rulers, persecution, heinous blasphemy against the God of gods, high-handed rebellion against God, And God is making this claim that none of it happens. None of it happens outside of his control. Not a single one of these tyrannical kings will prosper an inch beyond what God permits. None of them will remain in power a single second beyond what God has decreed. And that absolutely fortifies the nerves of the people of God. That should strengthen and encourage us today. Everybody's talking about how uncertain these times are, how unusual these times are. What's 2021 going to bring if 2020 was so weird? But the people of God should just live in all times, all periods, with this absolute confidence. Our God is the king of all history, including the year 2020, including 2021. He is king of time. And because he's the king of history, then nothing past, nothing present, Nothing future can ever separate you from the love of God for you in Christ. And God reveals himself in Daniel 11 as the king of kings. As Americans, we, it is just drilled into our heads, separation between church and state, separation between church and state. However, I think a lot of Americans assume that that means there's some separation between 
God and state. Even Christians start to assume there's a separation between God and state. Separation between the institution of church and state is one thing, right? That means Greg and Logan and I as pastors are not passing laws for civil government, and the civil government is not coming in here telling us how to worship God. That's one thing. But there is absolutely no separation between God and state. Daniel, the entire book of Daniel, absolutely destroys that idea. From the very opening verses all the way to the end, the book of Daniel proclaims God rules over the empires of man. He's no respecter of persons. He doesn't say, oh, that's your secular government there? Okay, I'll stay out. No, he calls all the kings of the earth to account. Daniel 4.17, the most high rules the kingdom of men. And that same phrase is repeated in Daniel 4.26 and 32 and 5.21. One of the main points of this book is to declare that God himself will, in history, on earth, establish a kingdom that is eternal, indestructible, and global. It will never end. It can never be destroyed, and it's for all peoples. And I could read that to you from Daniel 4.3 or 4.34 or 6.26 or 7.14 or 7.27, but I'll just read you Daniel 2.44. In the days of those kings, that's the Roman Empire, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. It is indestructible. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. So it's, it's global. It claims authority over all the kings and kingdoms and peoples of the earth. All nations and peoples shall praise this king, and it shall stand forever. It's eternal. So in Daniel 11, the contrast between that eternal, indestructible, global kingdom and the fleeting kingdoms of man is so stark. Daniel 11 spans 600 years of human history, from the Persian kings in the 6th century, down through the Greek dynasties, into the Roman Empire in the 1st century. And one of the most notable features of the prophecy here in the history that bears this out is the meteoric rise of some of these kings and then the astronomic crash of these kings. They pop up, they rule, they terrify, and they're just gone like that. Great armies are assembled in Daniel 11, verse 10, verse 11, verse 13, verse 25, and great armies are overthrown and swept away in verses 12, 15, 22, 26, just like that. Consider Alexander the Great in verses 3 and 4. A mighty king shall arise, and as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken. For his kingdom shall be plucked up. Or verse 20, speaking of Seleucus IV and his finance minister Heliodorus. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom, but within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. Just like that, he's gone. Or of Antiochus Epiphanes in verse 24, he shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. Brief. Verse 45 of the Romans, he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. I think some people read passages like this and fixate on evil kings and how bad it might get in the future. When the emphasis is so clearly on, in the same breath, they're gone. So if in the providence of God 
you live under wicked rulers and you face persecution or affliction, do not fear. God is the king of kings. The overwhelming impression is that the mightiest, most terrifying human kings are as fleeting as fog. They're just gone. But that this history is not happening haphazardly. Just as God rules over time, he rules over the kingdoms of earth. He judges the nations. He sets limits on these kings. He accomplishes his wise and his righteous purposes. He calls these rulers to account. So all of this is not to say that it doesn't matter who's in office. God is on the throne, so it just doesn't matter. No, it absolutely matters who's in office. And it matters because There's no separation between God and state. It matters that the kings of earth, it matters that civil magistrates, from the mayor to the governor to the president, acknowledge God, this God, who made himself known in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, and that all of those rulers govern in the fear of God, and that they seek to enact laws for the good of society that are in line with God and his word as he has revealed himself to us. That's why it matters who's in office. God's authority over human kings is a comfort. It was a comfort to the Jews who received this prophecy and lived under these kings, and it's a comfort to us today. Since God is king of kings, that means there is no earthly power, no earthly authority that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And and so those two things... God's dominion over history and over kings, that's a big transcendent thing. But I think this chapter also reveals God as the king of salvation. Again, I'm aware as I dig into this text that it's tempting to read these details and think, that just feels so irrelevant to me, to my life. Why these kings? Why these events? Why these times? The key to understanding not just this vision, but really the entire book of Daniel is to understand that everything in this book points again and again and again to Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah. J. Rogers in his book on Daniel writes this, Daniel focused on pagan civil rulers who were directly involved with the future of the Jewish people and especially the rebuilding of the temple, and its later desecrations, and its final destruction. And the ultimate purpose of all of that is to point to the time when the Messiah would come. That's what all of this points to. So for them, it was pointing forward. For us, it's pointing our attention back, and it's just spotlighting Jesus Christ as the Messiah, After returning to Jerusalem from exile, God's people still endured persecution. They suffered under cruel oppression. Listen again to verses 32 through 35 about Antiochus. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame and by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help. And many shall join themselves to them with flattery, and some of the wise shall stumble, not stumble in sin, but suffer, so that they may be refined, purified, made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed 
time. God reveals himself as the king of salvation, I think, in two ways in this chapter. One, by how he promises to preserve a faithful remnant of his people in every age. He's the God of salvation. He always preserves a faithful remnant of his people. And two, most ultimately, he promises in this passage to send the Messiah in history just as he did. Right at the end of that passage, verse 35, when it says, for it still awaits the appointed time. What is it? What's, what's still awaiting the appointed time? I think that's talking about the arrival of the Messiah who would fulfill all of God's promises of deliverance and salvation. But in the meantime, God's not absent. Just think about it. For the Messiah to come, to be a descendant of David as promised, a descendant of Abraham as promised, an offspring of Eve as promised, God had to preserve his people. He had to preserve a faithful remnant of them through the midst of all of those other tyrannical kings. Because if they die out, then, then that promise of a descendant of David to sit on the throne falls to the ground unfulfilled. So God preserves his people. And though some of them suffered, this, is an, this was an assurance to them, God only meant to refine them, to sanctify them, to purify them. And I think it's crucial for us today to understand this, how God works here, when God delivers, how he works, that what we see in Scripture is often when God delivers his people, he also disciplines them through that. God often disciplines his people even as he delivers them. I think this is so well said by a pastor from 1778 during the American War for Independence who preached a sermon in Hanover, New Jersey. So this is while the colonists are fighting against Britain. Listen to these words. This is a pastor named Jacob Green, 1778. He says this to his congregation. We are contending for liberty. Our cause is just, is glorious, more glorious than to contend for a kingdom, a cause on which we may hope for a divine blessing. Though our contention with Great Britain is so glorious, yet have we reason to be humbled and abased before God. We have reason to be humble and mourn for the many sins, the many vices that prevail among us. God has a controversy with us. How very different from that of Great Britain. God most righteously contends and corrects us for our sins. In this case, we have reason to submit, repent, and reform. Britain contends and threatens ruin. In this case, we justly vindicate ourselves and ought most vigorously to exert ourselves in a proper defense. I have always had the firmest belief that we should prevail in our contest with Britain, but... I have always thought and often told you that God would scourge us for our sins. What son is there whom the Father chastens not? It is common for God to correct his people when working deliverance for them. There it is. It is common for God to correct his people when working deliverance for them. Thus, he often treated Israel in the days of the judges. God often makes us makes use of the worst of instruments to correct his own people while he calls upon them to repent and reform. I find that so clarifying for the times we're in today. The people of God living in times like these, 
these kinds of times, these kinds of events should just drive us to our knees before God in humility. We should not be proud and arrogant looking out at evil in the world. We should be so quick to fall on our knees and to beg God for mercy, which he so freely gives. His throne is a throne of grace. We come confidently there for grace to find all of the grace and mercy that we need to help us in our time of need. So I want to call on you, the people of Emmaus Road Church, in these times when everybody else in the world is just wringing their hands and fretting, and it may be tempting to just kind of go along with business as usual, let these things get our attention, what's happening in our, our world today. Let it get our attention and cause us to pray, to fast if God leads you, to confess your sins and the sins of your household, to ask God for mercy on our nation. I, I think God means to get our attention, and it would be, it'd be a shame f- for him not to have our attention, for us just to carry on and think, None of this means anything from God. He often disciplines even as he delivers. But the end of this vision tells of a promise, uh, a, a deliverance even greater. Two events, that the Messiah would accomplish salvation and bring eternal life to his people and that he would judge all of the covenant breakers once and for all. Let me read verses 1 through 3 of chapter 12 again. At that time shall come, shall arise Michael, the great prince who is charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. To have your name written in the book is to be chosen by God as an object of his mercy. You don't get your name entered there by any work that you do for God. It is purely Grace, purely a gift that your name would be written there. And we learn in Revelation 13, 8, that that book was written before the foundation of the world and that it's called the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. Just just consider that. Before the foundation of the world, before Adam and Eve's sin, there was a book called the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. It was God's purpose to give His Son to be the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world, and it was His purpose before the foundation of the world to accomplish that, to save and to deliver His people, and to do that in time and in history. And everything about this prophecy is just pointing that that's going to happen during the Roman Empire. And sure enough, it did. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So there's this promise of everlasting life, resurrection from the dead, that those who were dead will come alive. I think that has ultimate fulfillment in the end times resurrection from the dead, but we know that that began to be fulfilled when Jesus Christ came and said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die Do you believe this? He said. He is the resurrection and the life. And so Paul can say in Ephesians 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, but he has made us alive together with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places. God has already given eternal life to his people. He's begun to give that eternal life that's in us now by faith and through the preaching of the gospel, God is raising people from the dead spiritually. That's what 
Daniel 12 foretells. And ultimately, not only will our spirits be raised from the dead, but our bodies too will be raised up out of the grave, out of the dirt, to live and never die and enjoy God forever. That's the deliverance that's promised here. Promise of resurrection. Salvation through Christ who died for our sins. And there's also a warning of judgment. Judgment and deliverance typically go together. When God delivered Israel from Egypt, he judged the Egyptians. When God moves to deliver his people, he judges his enemies. And so there's a warning of judgment here as well. When did that judgment foretold in Daniel 12 occur? This blows my mind. Jesus actually quotes Daniel 12.1 in Matthew 24. And Jesus is prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem, which actually happened in A.D. 70. Listen to Jesus' words. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. That's Daniel 12.1. So we read that and we think, must not have happened yet. Great tribulation such as never has been. But Jesus specifically said to his audience there in Matthew 24 that that prophecy, his prophecy in Matthew 24, Daniel's prophecy in Daniel 12 would be fulfilled within the lifetime of the people to whom he spoke. Listen to Jesus in verses 15 and 16. He says to his audience standing there, so when you, plural, speaking to his audience, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So he's speaking to people who live in Judea, speaking about desecration of the temple in Jerusalem, warning them when you see that, get out, because that tribulation that Daniel foretold, it's going to happen. And at the end of this prophecy, Jesus says in Matthew 24, 34, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. This generation, speaking about the people who are right there listening to him alive at that day, this generation will not pass away. So he's saying, Daniel's word's about to come true. In fact, did you catch what happened at the end of the vision? The angel says to Daniel, seal this up for the time of its fulfillment is far off. If you read the, the book of Revelation, the angel tells John specifically, do not seal this up for the time of fulfillment is near. I think the event's foretold in Revelation. Most of Revelation is describing that destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. In Daniel's day, it was far off. In John's day, it was about to happen. Jesus foretold this as well. And what Jesus said and what Daniel said is exactly what did happen. Listen to church father Eusebius writing about 200 years after the fact. He tells how Christians living in Jerusalem in those days heeded Jesus' warning and escaped to a city named Pella in Syria. Eusebius writes, When those that believed in Christ had come here from Jerusalem, then the judgment of God at length overtook those who had committed such outrages against Christ and against his apostles and totally destroyed that generation of impious men. How at last the abomination of desolation proclaimed by the prophets, Daniel 9.27, stood in the very temple of God, so celebrated of old, the temple which was now awaiting its total and final destruction by fire. All these things anyone that wishes may find accurately described in the history written by Josephus. Josephus was a Jewish historian. What does he say? Remember 
Daniel and Jesus said, tribulation like nobody's ever seen. These, these are the words of Josephus, a Jew who lived through those days. He says, it is impossible to go distinctly over every instance of these men's iniquity. I shall therefore speak my mind here at once briefly that neither did any other city ever suffer such miseries, nor did any age ever breed a generation more fruitful in wickedness than this was from the beginning of the world. I think historians point to the destruction of, the Jer of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 as the fulfillment of prophecies by Jesus and by Daniel and the fulfillment of God's judgment against covenant breakers, which is also his salvation and his deliverance of his faithful people for their good. All of this is just meant to point you to Jesus to confirm that is God's anointed king. He is. So trust him. Turn to him. He is the king of salvation. He's the one who died that your sins might be forgiven. He's the one who rose from the dead that you might enjoy God forever. He is the one to whom all people owe all of their worship, all of their allegiance forever. And because he's the king of salvation, then not even your sin can separate you from the love of God for you in Christ Jesus. And that comforts and strengthens our hearts. Let's pray. Jesus Christ, there is none like you. In heaven above or on earth below, there is none like you. And so it's our great joy to say, you have our attention. You have our affection. You have our allegiance. You are our king. You are the king of the nations. And may you have the glory and the honor and the praise that you so richly deserve. King of the nations. King of salvation. Our glorious king who took our shame and our sin that we might not be judged as we deserve, but forgiven and reconciled to God forever. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Strengthen us. Equip the people of Emmaus Road Church through this word in Daniel to be men and women of conviction and courage in these days. We, we trust we're living in these times by your providence, by your appointment. And so grant us through your spirit and your word all that we need to live for your glory and your renown on earth. Make yourself known. Make yourself known, we pray, in this world, in this city, through us. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.